conversations, and it's just really been a joy to get to know this church, um, and not the church as a whole uh, alone, but individuals, and uh, different individuals who I've spoken with, and you've been so kind to both myself and to my wife, and so just want to thank you so much. I know other... Other men from Grace Church have come up here and said wonderful things, and it uh, turns out they were right. Um, I usually just ignore what they say and don't believe them, but in this case, they were right. Um, God has blessed this church, and super thankful for your pastor, for Mark. He's been nothing but kind and gracious the whole time. And it, the kindness you have shown to Glenna and I, um, be sure and show that to your pastor on a week-in, week-out basis. Uh, if you do that, I know he'll be blessed. Um, he is with you guys uh, for the long term. And so continue to show your thankfulness to him. And he hasn't said that you haven't done otherwise. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> He's not complaining to me. But uh, I just know uh, how... Uh, how much gratitude I have for your kindness. So I want to encourage you to do the same. Well, there's a couple questions here. In fact, a couple more uh, came in. So we'll see. The first one, um, a question as far as China and the current situation in China for believers. The question is, is China as dangerous for Christians as the media portrays, including the imprisonment of Pastor Wang Yi? And do you feel the persecution has been a good thing for Christians in China and the church? And I appreciate the question, having been in China, having uh, just three and a half years ago moved back to the States. Uh, it's amazing um, how quickly things are changing in China. And the question that had been asked, even before I went, uh, even back as early as 2012, was I hear about persecution in China. Is, is that real? I hear other stories of uh, churches meeting openly and Christian books being published. And the answer we would always give uh, prior to going was, whatever you hear, what's happening in China is happening somewhere in China. Uh, it's not this monolithic thing where everything is handled the same in every city and every location. And there, I should say, had been places where churches met openly. And in fact, I was uh, involved in some getting some books published, like Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott, an excellent wife, and some books by MacArthur. And there was that openness uh, in some areas. And at the same time, even in, back in 2012 and earlier, there was persecution happening in locations. But since that time, especially the past five years or so, it has increased. Um, and even churches that met openly, we were part of a what you call unregistered, they'd say underground, but it wasn't really, I'm not even, not literally underground, it was in the, uh, kind of a room like this, uh, not quite as nice as this, but um, the police knew where we were and they allowed us to meet, but now, even that church we were part of cannot meet like this, and they had to split into all smaller groups, and so persecution is rising. And churches cannot meet as openly. Christian books can't get published. Uh, in fact, in 2012, I think it was through 2016 or so, you can buy Bibles on the internet uh, pretty easily on different uh, Chinese sites and get a Bible in Chinese. Well, they shut that down completely. Um, so persecution is increasing. How bad is it? Well, that depends what city you're in and what the local official is going to enforce. Um, but... Everywhere it's getting more difficult. And be praying for the believers in China. Um, is it a bad thing or a good thing? Well, certainly in, in a lot of ways it's a bad thing. Um, you know, the church being persecuted, uh, you know, is the work of Satan. 
and the work of this world. But can God use those bad things even to purify and to strengthen his church? Absolutely. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And uh, if the gates of hell won't stand against it, certainly the Chinese government can't overcome the church. So we can trust God, but be praying for the Christian believers over there. Uh, it is difficult for them, and, um, but God can give them grace and strength through that. The church continued through the cultural revolution, and certainly God can continue to keep it strong through this as well. So I wanted to address that. Second question here, how would you encourage people to grow and cultivate a heart of humility? And that's... Yeah, that's a great question. We always want to increase in our humility. And the best way, I guess the number one way I would say increasing in humility is continue to study Christ. We tend to grow in pride when we compare ourselves with other people. Because we can always find something in someone else that uh, we don't think they do as well as we do. But if you compare yourself to Christ, you're never going to be able to say, Oh, well, I do that better than Jesus. Uh, He wasn't quite as good as me in that area. So if you compare yourself with Christ constantly, uh, you will certainly grow in humility. And continue to dwell on the grace of God. And God's grace in your salvation. Um, this uh, The title for this series that we did this weekend, Jewels from James, uh, partially was chosen because, hey, start, we'll start with J, Jewels from James. Isn't that clever? Uh, so that's the kind of seminary training that I got. <laughs> I can alliterate, folks. <clears throat> but partly, I think, in the back of my mind, there's a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan writer. And that is a book that is really helpful for me, um, really convicted me. One of the chapters in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, he talks about our unworthiness and just how everything we have is God's grace. Therefore, we're to be content because we don't deserve any good thing. And uh, reading books like that that remind us that we're completely dependent on the Lord it is certainly helpful. Think on Christ. Think on the attributes of God and His great grace. And, uh, and you will. You'll grow in humility. Be frequent in your confession before the Lord. That's not just something you do when you get saved, but it's part of your sanctification. So, but we all need to grow in that way. Um, last question. When addressing potential conflicts and things that are hard for us in our relationships, how do we find the right balance between... Um, playing, uh, I guess, playing out and waiting to address it with the right heart and moving forward with seeking peace. Do I move forward with bringing it up, even though I still might be thinking about the issue with bitter jealousy or selfish ambition? So, yeah, it's... Or praying and waiting to address. So, yeah, do you address things? I guess the, the bottom line is, do you address things um, right away, even if your heart is not right about it, Or do you just pray and wait until your heart becomes right? Um, And that's that's a good question, but we got to remember that getting your heart right is doesn't have to be a three month process. Um, If your heart's not right, no, take the log out of your eye. Don't say, "Well, I got to get that spec." It's a hurry. You got to get that spec. Who cares about this log? Um, No, the spec can wait. Get the log out. 
and whatever that takes as far as time to get your heart right. And we're going to be looking at in in, uh, this last message here in James about what it looks like to get our heart right and uh, end that process. And if there is an issue that you need to address with a brother or sister, um, as we look at what James tells us in chapter 4 here, uh, you can do that this morning. Get your heart right. Make sure that you have confessed and repented of whatever it is that you need, the business you need to take care of before you go to your brother or sister. So, um, <clears throat> so these are all good questions, and a lot of it goes, uh, these final two questions particularly, to application, putting this into practice in our life. And that's exactly what we need to be doing. And I'm appreciative of, of the thinking that, okay, this is the truth that we've been looking at from the book of James. What does this look like in my life? And that is absolutely the right response. So um, I'm grateful for those questions because you're thinking, okay, how do I live this out? James tells us we must be doing that. We must be putting into practice these things that are true. And so that is uh, an encouragement to hear your thinking that way. Well, this morning we're going to look at James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. And we're going to be talking about repentance. Repentance, and how genuine repentance is required. Now, most of us, all of us, know the word repentance. We're familiar with the word repentance. It's a complete turn from living one way, a 180 degree turn, and then going the other direction. It's not just confession, it's not just stopping, but it's a complete turn from doing what is wrong and then doing what is right. And we know that repentance is a necessary part of the gospel message. We must be speaking of repentance when we tell the gospel to others. I think there are times in gospel presentations you hear there's, a, there's an invitation or... Um, you have a God-sized hole in your heart that you need to have God fill. Uh, or, you know, God has a plan for your life. Well, you, you know, if you just know God, then you can have a purpose in your life. And those things aren't 100% wrong, but they're missing a lot of times this key element of repentance. And repentance must be part of our gospel presentation. And that's one application that certainly we can walk away with today is how James speaks of repentance. Even without using the word, it's all about repentance. But are we communicating the need for repentance when we tell others the gospel? And certainly we see that modeled in Scripture. John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus in Matthew 4.17, we just looked at, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter in Acts 2.38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 26, we see Paul saying the same thing to King Agrippa. He speaks of his uh, heavenly vision when he was saved and said that God has given him the duty to declare that people should repent and turn to God before performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In Acts 26, 20. So certainly we see repentance is modeled for us. That is part of the gospel message that we teach. And we see all those examples there. We also need to understand that repentance is not just for your conversion. It's not just at the point 
of your salvation, your justification. Repentance needs to be something you live out in your daily life as well. Now there's a lot of commentators who, they disagree on this passage that we're looking at, James 4, 7-10. Is this written to Christians? Or is this written to unbelievers? And so there's a lot of discussion, some of the terms that are used here when he talks about sinners, when he talks about the double-minded. And are these terms that can be used for Christians, or is he focusing on unbelievers? Well, I think what's important is to recognize James doesn't say. James doesn't clearly say, now for you who aren't children of God. And I think he does leave it open for two reasons. Number one, he's been giving a series of tests to see whether or not you're in the faith. And he's writing to the church. He's writing to people who think that they're believers. And he gives them these tests. And if they fail the tests, that means they're not saved. If your life does not demonstrate works after your salvation, then was your faith real to begin with? And he says, no, then you're not truly a child of God. If the so-called wisdom that you have is all about pride and arrogance, then you fail the test of wisdom. And you need to examine whether you're saved. If you're more of a friend of the world, we looked at in the last passage, and the lusts of this world, the, the desires to for your own personal happiness, are the most important thing, then you fail that test as well, and you need to come to salvation. So James gives this message to both unbelievers who fail these tests, but I I think even believers in the church need to hear this, and each one of us needs to remember that repentance is something that's needed every time you sin before the Lord. And we spoke the or looked last two times at these important topics of do we have pride in our own wisdom? Do we have um, a feeling like we deserve what we want rather than trusting in God? And if you see those attitudes, if you see your behavior spelled out in that way, well, what's the solution? What do you do? Well, James tells us it's to repent. I appreciate what Wayne Grudem, he wrote a book on systematic theology, and he said this about repentance. Although it is true that initial saving faith and initial repentance occur only once in our lives, and when they occur, they constitute true conversion. Nevertheless, the heart attitude of repentance and faith only begins at conversion. These same attitudes should continue throughout the course of our Christian lives. Each day there should be heartfelt repentance for sins that we have committed, and faith in Christ to provide for our needs and to empower us in the Christian life. So as we look at these things, let's, let's consider, first of all, consider number one, with the test that James has provided, do you need to examine your heart? And, and, and I don't know every one of you. I don't know if you've truly come to faith. So the first thing to do is truly examine your heart. Have I responded to Christ in this way? Have I ever repented in this way, this mourning for sin that he's going to speak of? But secondly, if you examine yourself and say, yes, yes, I remember clearly not only doing that uh, one time, but that is uh, marked in my life. Is there anything now to confess? Or next uh, through this next week, as you see things arise, are there ways that you too need to repent in these ways. So let's look together then at James chapter 4 verses 7 to 10. 
And what we're going to see here is that genuine repentance requires three things. So the outline is three different, three essential elements of genuine repentance. Three essential elements of genuine repentance. And the first will be this in verse 7. Genuine repentance requires submitting to the authority of God. That'll be in verse 7. Secondly, genuine repentance requires pursuing fellowship with God. And we'll see that in verse 8. And then finally, genuine repentance requires abandoning your sin. And we'll see that in the last half of 8 through verse 10. And this passage is somewhat unique in James. James has a series of commands, but nowhere are they more densely concentrated than in these four verses. In fact, in these four verses, short four verses, there's ten imperatives that are given. Just rapid-fire imperatives, one after the other in these verses. Why does he do that? Uh, What is so different about this? And the reason he does this is because he's expressing the urgency of their need to repent. And so some say it's the oratory peak of the book because of these strong commands, one after the other. So in these four verses, ten rapid-fire commands, but with them, we're going to see three promises as well. Three promises, and each of the elements that I mentioned, submitting to the authority of God, pursuing fellowship with God, and abandoning your sin, will come with a promise attached to it as well. And that's encouraging. Because our, our repentance is absolutely vital, but we know that God encourages our repentance and He responds to it. So let's read together first, James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I'll take a quick drink here. Now the first thing I want to point out as we look at verse 7 there, it's, there's the word therefore. And if you've done Bible study, heard preaching, you know, you always see a therefore. You say, what is the therefore, therefore? Why is it in this text? What is he pointing to? Well, he's pointing to the previous verse. And in the previous verse, we were reminded, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And James quoted there, from Proverbs, that important verse. And that is really the launch pad for the four verses that we're looking at today. It is as he is saying, God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble, that he then explains repentance. Because repentance is the manifestation of a heart of humility. A humble heart will respond in repentance before God because it sees its own sin and You see your own affront to God and know you must repent from that. What we had looked at is so much a lack of humility in worldly pride and worldly wisdom and, and having that arrogance. 
It's prideful. It's a lack of humility to think you deserve things and to have all your lusts fulfilled and just seek pleasure in this life. So repentance is the answer. And God says, if we are humble, that is how we will respond. So first, let's look at this first essential element in verse 7. To truly repent, you must submit to the authority of God. You must submit to the authority of God. And the word submit here is is a command. And this word submit is one that is used elsewhere in Scripture many times. It speaks of submission of a child to an adult, of a wife to a husband, a citizen to the government, or slaves to their master. And it literally means to put yourself under someone else, to put yourself under them where you are obeying their authority. And certainly when someone comes to Christ, there must be submission to God. There has to be a submission to God. It's not just, well, I ask the Lord to be my Savior, and I'm good without recognizing what the word Lord even means. Lord means Master. Lord means you're submitting yourself to Him. There are some who would wrongly say, well, I made Jesus a Savior of my life, and later I made Him Lord of my life. Well, the Bible knows nothing of that distinction. You make Jesus Savior and Lord when you come to faith. It is imperative. 1 John 2.3 reminds us that it must go together. By this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says he's come to know God and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. Right? It's definitely a part of salvation. If you do not submit to the Lord, you have not become a believer. Now, I think of submission, I I remember a story I heard. I'm, I'm a UCLA alum and basketball fan. So Coach Wooden and some of the stories surrounding Coach Wooden I always appreciated. And the story about Coach Wooden I think illustrates submission. Uh, He had a top basketball player, a guy named Bill Walton was playing for John Wooden. And uh, Bill Walton was a little bit of a renegade type of guy. He does announcing now for UCLA games if you watch those. It's awful. I don't know who likes Bill Walton as an announcer. I'm sure he's a great guy, but boy, he just leaves the game and starts talking. But uh, he, he decided he was going to grow a beard, be part of the UCLA basketball team. He thought, hey, you know, I, that's what I want to do. I'm a young college guy. I'll do what I want. And so he came to practice with a beard. And Walton, Bill Walton says, hey, it's my right to have a beard. I'm in control of what I do. And Coach Wooden said, that, that's great, Bill. Uh, do you really believe strongly? You have to go, oh, yeah. Yeah, I strongly believe that. He says, I really admire you, Bill, for having strong convictions and stick by them. We're really going to miss you on this team. <laughs> well, he shaved his beard uh, immediately to stay part of the team. And that's what submission is. It's realized, okay, I'm not actually in control. I need surrender my rights. And we, as believers, recognize God's in control. We don't get to do whatever we want. It's not your rights. God has the right to call the shots. And again, this is not just in your salvation, but daily in your life. Do you submit to what the Lord would have you to do? And even thinking back to our last passage, you have a a natural desire, something you want to do, and when you don't get that, do you submit to God's commands? 
And that shows a godly heart saying, look, Lord, I submit to your plan for my life. I really wanted, say, someone I, you know, I really wanted to get married, but here I am, older and not married. Will I trust the Lord for that? Am I going to live a life of depression and despair? Or I submit God to your plan for my life. I really wanted to do well at my job, but my boss is keeping me down and making my life miserable. Well, lack of submission says, well, I'm going to act out then. I'm going to respond in a sinful way. But submission means, God, I trust you for this. I'm submitting to what your plan is on this. So we must, in repentance, truly submit to God. But there's a flip side to that in verse 7 there. We see in, not only submit therefore to God, but resist the devil. And he will flee from you. To resist the devil. And when you submit to God, you now stand in opposition to the devil. You're no longer an enemy of God. But as a believer, you're now an enemy of Satan. And your allegiance to God requires that you become the devil's enemy. So how do you do this? We say, it says, resist the devil. What does that mean? How do we live that out? Well, it's rejecting the plans and the schemes of the devil. And what are the schemes of the devil? Well, it's to be a friend of the world. We just read that earlier. In verse 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if now you have switched teams, in a sense, you are no longer following what Satan wants, and you're an enemy of Satan, you are no longer then a friend of the world. So to resist Satan means to resist the thinking, the pleasure-seeking mindset of this world. We must resist that. It's so easy to get caught up in that. And particularly because, number one, around it all the time at work, and everyone else is running that direction. And then sometimes, in many ways, we invite that into our life through entertainment. Entertainment so often has the mindset of seeking pleasure. And the storylines are all about finding your own personal satisfaction. You must recognize and reject that philosophy of the world. We must resist the devil. Back in Ephesians 2, 1-3, you remember Ephesians 2 talks about our salvation and what we were before Christ, dead in our transgressions and sins. And I think it, it helps us, and even looking at that, what the devil's plans are. It says in Ephesians 2, 1-3, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And this is how the devil's plan in verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is what Satan wants to encourage us to continue to live in the lusts of our flesh. Continue to seek after what you want. If God says no, look, I'm going to sin if I need to do it to get what I want. Or complain that I'm not getting what I want. But we must resist the devil. We must resist the schemes that he has. Um, another, I didn't mean for this to be a book recommendation morning, um, but Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices is another wonderful book by Thomas Brooks, one of my favorites. 
And I highly recommend that one as well. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And it talks through what are the ways that Satan tempts us to sin and what is the biblical truth that we need to combat that with. But what I appreciate about this essential element of repentance here is, and each of them, they come with promises. And in this one in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a great promise. As a believer, Satan is not in control of your life. Satan can't make you sin. I think there was an old comedy sketch that used to say, well, Satan made me do it. Well, that's not true. As a believer, Satan cannot make you do anything. Satan will flee if you resist him. If you are a person who has Christ in your stead, that that Christ... His sacrifice and what his life is standing in your place, Satan will flee from you. The unbeliever is not free. The person in the world is not free from the power of sin, either their own flesh or from Satan. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. As an unbeliever, you don't have power over Satan, but as a believer, you can resist him. And we need to continue to stand firm and continue to resist. You can say no to that worldly mindset. You may have decisions in your life, career path-wise, where you're asked to do something that you know displeases the Lord. And you may have to make a very difficult decision there. But God will give you strength through that. There may be a decision where it's, hey, if you want to advance, you need to work 80, 90 hours a week and not see your family. Well, what are you going to do? That's the world's mindset. Advance, get the top, get the money, be the top person. You need to make decisions on that. Resist the devil. So we see here the first element in verse 7 here is submitting to the authority of God. Genuine repentance requires submitting to the authority of God. The second one we'll look at in verse 8. Verse 8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So the second element is we must pursue fellowship with God. We must draw near to God. And the Jewish readers who would be receiving this, they'd be familiar with the priests in the Old Testament. Of The priests would draw near to God with their sacrifices. It was only the priests who could do that, in fact. The normal people were not able to do that. But now as believers... Every one of us can draw near to God. You can approach God because what Christ has done, because His righteousness is before the Lord, we can boldly approach the throne, as it says in the hymn. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We can draw near to God through Christ our own. Hebrews 7 23 to 25 reminds us of this great truth. In Hebrews 7, starting in 23, it says the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a great promise that is. 
Christ is always making intercession. We can draw near to God. Repentance is not just on a horizontal level and avoiding things of this world. It is seeking after God. Well, what does that look like? Okay, seek after God, draw near to God. What does that look like? Well, believer, for you, it's going to God in prayer. Seek Him in prayer. And in prayer, speak out to God. Tell Him what is on your heart. Not memorize things uh, necessarily, but really from your heart. What is going on in your heart? Seek Him in prayer and, and through His Word. You must draw near to God in repentance, even if it's the last thing you want to do. We remember Adam and Eve in the garden. When they had sinned against God, they wanted to hide. They did not want to face God. And that, I believe, in a lot of ways may reflect our attitudes when we sin. When you sin, it's like, okay, I know I've done something wrong. I'm going to not read my Bible for a while because I haven't followed the Lord. I better not go to church for a while because I know um, God won't accept me. Well, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. We're not supposed to stay away from the Lord when we have failed, when we have sinned against Him. We're supposed to run to Him in repentance. Draw near to God. You don't earn your way back to God. I think as, as believers we may think, okay, now God can use me. I've earned God's favor again. You don't earn God's favor in your spiritual life, in your sanctification, any more than you earn God's favor in your justification. You draw near to God because God is gracious, not because you deserve Him and His kindness toward you. Now, this second element comes with a promise as well. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. God will draw near to you. What an encouragement that is. Certainly for an unbeliever and evaluating, hey, I can seek after God, but is God going to reject me? And this says, no, God will also draw near to you if you come to Him in humble repentance. And for you, believer, you seek after God. He will draw near to you. And I think such a great illustration of this was what Christ said in the story of the prodigal son. The son humbled himself in repentance, knowing he had sinned against the father. And he returned home in humility, saying, I'm not worthy to be called a slave. What does the father do? He ran to him. He ran to his son. And that is the picture that's given here. The great love of God that, that when we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. There's an old Christian song um, that talked about the prodigal son, and I appreciate how it was worded. Um, this is well before your time, I'm sure, a guy named Benny Hester. It's, the song is called When God Ran. And he says, Almighty God, the great I am, immovable rock, omnipotent, powerful, awesome Lord, victorious warrior, commanding king of kings, mighty conqueror. And the only time, the only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me, took me in his arms, held my head to his chest and said, my son has come home again. He lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes. And with forgiveness in his voice, he said, Son, do you know I still love you? And again, that's 
looking at the prodigal son, and this is what God does. He does draw near to us. When you are broken over your sin, we don't need to think, well, God is never going to accept me again as his child. No, God says, do you know I still love you? And he does receive us back. So that's the second element. We saw the first element of genuine repentance is submitting to the authority of God. The second is pursuing fellowship with God. The third is genuine repentance means abandoning your sin. Abandoning your sin. And we see this in the second half of 8 all the way through 10. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself under the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. James now explains that the heart attitude attitude one must have in coming to God. The heart of humble repentance. And he says here both inside and outside change are necessary. He starts off here, cleanse your hands. And by saying cleanse your hands, he's looking at the outward deeds, what, what you do. In Psalm 18.20, it says, The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He's recompensed me. And the idea here is the acts that you have committed. And we are to cleanse our hands, to put away those sinful acts. All those outward things that more look like the world than it looks like what Christ has done. And so, for the unbeliever, there are sins that must be put off and must be put away and completely dead to those. And certainly for believers as well, we are to die to our sins daily. All of those things. But it's not just the outward, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, but also purify your hearts, you double-minded. And genuine repentance is not just stopping from doing things on the outside. It's not just your actions. But it is your heart as well that must be purified. That must be cleaned before God. Genuine repentance always starts from the heart. We're reminded of Psalm 24. Psalm 24, uh, such a parallel to this, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in His holy place, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and not sworn deceitfully. And we see here the need for outside abandoning of sin and inside in the hearts. And it's directed towards, he says, towards sinners and towards the double-minded. And certainly, sinners in Scripture refers to those who have not known Christ. And again, this... Most specifically in James is referring to those who have failed these tests of faith and have not come to know Christ. And double-minded as well, one who is part of the church but is really part of the world. And that is where the primary command is here. And yet, believer, do you act like the world sometimes? Are you double-minded? And while you should have both feet in the church, you still keep one in the world. Are you double-minded in some way? And the things of the church and what Scripture says and what you learn here is important, but what the world says is important is, well, that's kind of important to you too. Are you double-minded in any way? Well, James tells us 
Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Your repentance needs to be true and a complete abandoning of sin. And then in verse 9, we see the emotions that come with a heart that abandons sin. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. A right understanding of sin will lead you to sorrow. Sin should be something that when you recognize it in your life, that should make you sorrowful. Not like, oh yeah, I guess that was a sin. But we need to be serious about it. Psalm 34.18 The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We need to be broken over sin. Yes, at our justification and in your sanctification as well. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Brokenness and sorrow over sin are essential elements of repentance. I had a counseling situation once where we had to confront my wife and I confront this couple on some sin in their life. And it was clearly sin. But the couple said, you know, I don't know, maybe it's sin, maybe it's not, but we'll stop doing it. Uh, that's fine, Pastor, we'll stop doing it. But never a brokenness over sin. Not, not a repentance that God was looking for. Remember, your sin is why Jesus went to the cross. When we read of the agony that Jesus faced... Certainly from the physical level, the lashes on the back, the crown of thorns on the head, the nails going through the hands, that is emotionally moving because we can recognize the pain that that feels. Well, he endured that for you. And yet even that physical suffering was not the greatest suffering that Jesus faced on the cross. It was when the sin of the world was upon him and he died for it. When the sky went dark and God's judgment came upon that sin that Jesus bore on the cross. And that was your sin. It was my sin as well. And when you recognize sin in your life, recognize that's what it cost Jesus. It's a serious thing when we sin, and so we shouldn't mourn over it. So these commands here, Miserable, mourn, weep. There should be times in our life when we recognize sin that that is our response. That we are completely broken over it in a deep sadness because of what it cost Christ. Deal with sin seriously. I more recently, um, with all the you know the COVID wackiness that's been going on the last year and a half, uh, the latest step in the COVID craziness is. Uh, the vaccines. And do you take the vaccine? Do you not take the vaccine? What about uh, religious exemptions? I've been vaccinated. Uh, I'll come clean on that. I had COVID last December, and now I've been vaccinated, so I think I'm bulletproof, but who knows uh, how that all works. But people have been coming to me for religious exemption. Pastor, can you fill out this religious exemption? Because I don't want to get the vaccine. And, uh, you know, I might get fired. So so can you sign this? And say, okay, well, what's the reasoning? And the reasoning is usually, look, you know, my body is uh, a stewardship. It's a temple of the Lord. And I think this will be harmful to me. And therefore, 
whatever is not from faith is sin. So therefore, I think it's sin for me to take this vaccine. So that's my religious exemption. And usually the conversation goes something like this. I say, thank you, brother, for sharing that. So you believe this is sin for you to take the vaccine? He says, yes. I said, okay. Um, If then they said, we're not accepting a religious exemption, you're going to get fired. Uh, Will you take the vaccine? Because we're not accepting that. If you believe this is sin, you have to say, yes, I'd rather be fired than sin against my God. I said, okay. Uh, Are you willing to say that? Now say they held a gun to your head and said, you take this vaccine or I'm going to kill you. Well, if you think that's sin, if you generally think that's sin, then say, hey, I would rather die than dishonor my Lord. Or if they took a gun to your wife's head and said, you do this vaccine, which you're saying is a sin, or I'm going to kill your family. If that is truly, you believe firmly it's a sin, then you have to say, I cannot sin before God. That has to be how firmly you believe this is a sin. And if you can't say this, then I don't think we should do this religious exemption. No one's actually gone through and had me sign one of those yet. <laughs> you know, now, can someone come to that conclusion? Perhaps. And I'm not, you know, if that is how they're convinced. But you must not treat lightly. Well, I think that's a sin, and so, you know, I'm trying to get out of something. Sin is serious. And this is the response. Miserable, mourn, and weep. That is how we should view sin in our life. And if you have recognize perhaps sin in your own heart from this previous passage of pride and arrogance, of a bitter zeal, of willingness to argue or complain if you do not get what you so desperately desire. Those are things to repent of, and those are sins to be mournful over. Now this is not saying, as we see this, That laughter is always wrong. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's not that you're never supposed to smile or laugh. Um, You know, a lot of laughter last night here for the talent slash untalent show. Uh, Great time. And that's fantastic. What James is talking about is in the context of repentance, in the context of recognizing sin. We are not to treat it lightly. We are to be crushed over it. And then he says, finally, in verse 10, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. And to humble yourself, to make yourself low. And it's not just self-introspection and just walking around gloomy all the time. It's recognizing your total unworthiness before God. To humble yourself before the Lord is recognizing His great worth and your own lack of worth, your sin in the light of God's amazing grace. Similar to that hymn, Amazing Grace. How, amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That is the humility we need to have. That we were blind, but now we see. We were a wretch before God. And then there's a recognition. Then that our... Repentance and our forgiveness rests completely on the grace of God. And so we must live a life of continual humility. So he launched it from verse 6. God's opposed the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now he circles around saying, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. 
And that must be our heart attitude as a child of God, is, is continual humility before the Lord, because it all depends on God's grace, and nothing of what you do yourself. And as a Christian, when you see in your heart sins of pride, selfishness, and jealousy, mourn, humble yourself, and God's grace is there to meet you. And it says there a promise, the promise there, and He will exalt you, to lift you up. And the picture there is someone humbly bowing before a king, and the king taking his hand and lifting them, him up then off the ground. And that's what God does. He lifts us up. When we are broken and mourn and weep, He comforts. And certainly there's, in view also, the, the final exaltation when we are brought together with Christ in glory, in our glorification. And so these are truths. If you are uncertain of your salvation, if you don't know, this is what repentance looks like. This is what God wants you to do. You need to recognize the seriousness of your sin and forsake it and run after God and humble yourself. And if you're a believer, you need to do these things whenever you see sin in your life. Surrender to the authority of God. Pursue fellowship with God. Abandon any vestige of sin in your life. And the promises are there. The devil will flee from you. God will draw near and God will exalt you. And so we need to pray as we read in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any anxious thoughts in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word from this clear word from James and what repentance looks like. And we appreciate it's not some step by step list, but just a passionate plea to humble ourselves before you. And Lord, may we always treat sin as serious as it is and remember always what it did to Christ. And when we see sin in our life, that we would flee from it, that we would run and seek after you in repentance. Lord, you are such a gracious God, and we thank you for your great promises in this passage as well, that you draw near to us. Lord, and so we, we can walk out with boldness approaching the throne because we know what Christ has done, and through him we are accepted by you, and so we thank you. And praise you for this time. In the name of Christ, amen.